0: hello friends welcome to another edition of the inside bs show today we're talking to a highly successful lawyer who knows how to build relationships and he's also an expert on diversity in the practice of law because he's lived it for his entire career umar sheikh is my friend and he's an attorney with over 15 years of experience having received his law degree from brooklyn law school in 2000 Umar's practice concentrates on all aspects of real estate law, which includes purchases, sales, financing, development, leasing, evictions, foreclosures, management, pretty much anything you can do with real estate. If it goes in dirt, on dirt, or above dirt, Umar is going to be able to help you with it. Umar represents parties in the purchase, sale, financing of multifamily, mixed use, commercial, retail. And as I said, look, If you need help with real estate in New York or New Jersey, Umar's your guy. He represents borrowers. He's been involved in hard money transactions. He can do fix and flips. I mean, he's the guy for real estate in New York, New Jersey, and even parts unknown, even places outside of that. He currently serves on the board of directors for both The New Jersey Muslim Lawyers Association and Muslims for Peace, Inc. He has previously served on the board of directors for the Asian American Bar Association of New York. He's a member of the ABA, the American Bar Association. He's a member of the New Jersey Muslim Lawyers Association, and he's a member of the Asian American Bar Association of New York. I'm thrilled, I'm happy, I'm honored to have as a guest for you today my friend Umar Sheikh welcome Umar to the show so Umar you're the first guest I've ever had that can represent people in parts unknown so welcome I don't, I don't know I don't know where parts unknown came from but it sounded good you know it's like a wrestling introduction and now from parts unknown Umar Sheikh <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for thanks for joining us today Umar I appreciate you being here
1: Dave, I appreciate you asking me to join. Um, and look, I've always wanted the wrestling intro, so it fits perfectly.
0: <laughs> um, let's talk first about, one of the things that strikes me, so I'm, I'm reading through your bio, right? And one of the things that strikes me is the name of an organization that you're on the board of, Muslims for Peace. And so here's the thing, a lot of people don't know this, but um, you know, I, my, my first marriage, I was married to uh, someone who's of Lebanese descent. And my best, one of my absolute best friends in the world is from Syria. I was the best man in his wedding. Um, you know, we met when when I was really, really young, and you know, sort of grew up together. Everybody that I know, every Muslim I know, is for peace, right? Ninety nine point nine percent of Muslims are are for peace. Why is there an organization named Muslims for Peace? What? I, explain that to me.
1: So I I think it's uh, twofold. One is that I guess the hope is that all Muslims join us, right? Because we're all for peace. Um, But I think, you know, I got involved with the organization about 10 years after it started. And I think the founders, when they chose the name, the organization came out of a lot of events after 9-11. And so it was a way to signal to the world um, that, no, in fact, we are for peace, and what you're hearing um, in other places in, you know, is, is not exactly true. So it was more of a marketing strategy to let people know. Um, we have talked about possibly changing the name now, because I think uh, a lot of those dynamics in the world have changed a bit, um, and you're not the first person to ask that question, right? Um,
0: yeah so you know and as i look at world events today so for, for those of you uh you know listening to this we're we're recording it at the end of january um 2021 you're probably going to listen to this in the beginning of february 2021 but you may be listening to this somewhere down the road as i record this it appears that there are uh, that, that we need a, an americans for peace organization more than we need a muslims <laughs> for peace organization so i i mean have have relationship have relations changed, is there less of a stigma? Is it more comfortable to be an American Muslim today than it was, say, five, 10 years ago?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in my lifetime, things have changed several times, right? So, you know, if you go back to the, the 70s and 80s, I think it was American Muslims just trying to assimilate as much as possible. Um, You didn't see a lot of culture. You didn't see a lot of religious activities. And that was sort of the idea is just, okay, we're going to blend in as much as possible. And, um, you know, then late 80s through the 90s and 2000s, you had sort of a cultural shift in the thinking. You had a lot more Muslims coming over into the U.S. and, um, you know, just generationally people thinking that, um, you know, no, this is what I am and we have freedom of religion here and you know, um, I'm going to be very uh, outward about my religion and my culture, and then all of a sudden, 9/11 hits, right? And you have that conversation again. You know, do we do we sort of take a step back, or do we take a step forward? Um, you know, because there's two separate things that you're thinking about. You're thinking about, you know, yourself as an American, as a patriot, as a citizen, and then you're thinking about yourself religiously, and you know, the religion. Uh, teaches and emphasizes that, you know, if you don't live in a Muslim country, then, you know, one of the things that you're obligated to do is to live within the rules of that country. Um, And so that's something that a lot of people don't think, don't think about, don't hear about. You know, there's chatter that Muslims are trying to institute Sharia law and all those other things. And and that's actually against the tenets of the religion.
0: Yeah. So So have people... Have people had productive conversations with you over the years about that? Because I remember specifically, and you'll you'll know this better than I than I. I remember specifically a situation. I I can't remember if it was four years ago, five years ago, when the Beverly Hills Hotel in California, uh, there was there was a boycott because I believe it was the owner. Hopefully, I'm getting the story right. The owner was a muslim and he was involved in a group that was um you know they they were doing something related to sharia law in other words they were teaching about sharia law like a sunday school type of thing you know i i don't know if it's sunday school in in the muslim religion but you know in the christian religion there'd be a sunday school kids would go while the parents were in church right so like a sunday school setting they were teaching sharia law And all of a sudden that got perverted into, he's trying to impose Sharia law on the people who work in the hotel. So there was a boycott of the Beverly Hills Hotel and that led to discussions among the people that I know. uh, And I was like, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, he's just following his religion and he's got nothing to do with the people who work with him. Have you been able to have productive conversations with people who say Muslims want to impose Sharia law on Americans? I mean, is that, have you been able to have a productive conversation with somebody who, you know, that starts in that place? So
1: productive, probably not. Um, So I I haven't had many conversations about, you know, with people that come from that viewpoint, and that might just be from, you know, being kind of in the Northeast. you know, we have, you know, we're sort of, you don't hear a lot of that conversation about Sharia law trying to take over. Um, And so, uh, you know, that conversation I think comes from a place of fear. Um, And in Mm -hmm. my estimation, like once someone's got that fear kind of locked into their head, it's very difficult to have a productive conversation with them. Mm.
0: Is there, um, is there hope through exposure like you know they meet somebody who they really like and then they find out what their religion is later on is there hope through exposure that those people can be can be uh won over i think so
1: and i think that's one of the missions of muslims for peace right is you know mm-hmm. through our okay. charity work and through teaching right you're going to come across uh, you know uh, muslims in a context that you normally wouldn't think about right you know with us sort of, you know, sponsoring a Christmas party or or doing a Thanksgiving donation, or, you know, one of the things that we do is a comedy show every year where we highlight Muslim comedians. Um, And and so like those types of events where you normally wouldn't think of like, oh, there's a room full of Muslims that I can talk about. And they're laughing at the same things that I'm laughing at, uh, you know, or telling jokes that I don't get because they're a little bit cultural. But in, in any event, just learning more about, you know, um you know the not only the religion but the different cultures from where muslims come from right so like if i if i plopped you down in albania um you wouldn't be able to spot a muslim right um because you know it you know the muslims that you kind of see in this country are you know more arab more south asian um as opposed to your you know for a you know for as a you know anglo-saxon european so
0: right How how do how do we how do we understand and and um, translate what we see in the media? Because my my experience is that the you know the the Muslim community never gets a fair shake even today in the media, right? So how do how do people go and you know watch? TV, watch the news, and then where do they go to look for the other side of the story, right? I'm not gonna get my Fox News watching parents to go to, to watch mm-hmm. Al Jazeera, but you know, where can we go? Where can I take my, you know, my 12 year old kid and t- say to my 12 year old kid, okay, watch this story on the news. Now go to this site and read this, and you're gonna understand the full scope of the picture. Where can we go and really get? I mean, is it? Is it? You know, is it uh, the BBC? I mean, do we have to go and and watch news from overseas sites to understand what's going on? Because it's really hard to find news without a bias. And I'm not talking mm-hmm. about cable news. I'm talking about mainstream news. It's the way it is. Is it's just? Uh, it's it's just a. It's just the way the media covers situations that involve people that are either from the middle east or have that religion so where 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 do you recommend people go to to get a balanced view that's a
1: very good question um and i don't think i know the answer to that i mean you know we do have in this country you know some muslim journalists that are breaking into mainstream you know uh one one person Mm -hmm. that comes to mind is Hassan um and you know he'll give you that alternate viewpoint as to um you know why um you know and and how some stories are portrayed with an islamic phobic bent Um, but i don't think it's any different than any other culture group that kind of has to fight that same type of media bias you know whether it's the lgbtq community whether it's african americans whether it's muslim americans whether it's jewish americans there you know, the, that bias is there with almost any type of storytelling, right? Because that's the hook that the media needs in some, right. And, and in some instances, you know, you need a villain, um, and, and that, you know, villains sell, right. Um, you know, that's, that's why Marvel and Batman and DC are so, um, you know, so popular, right. Is, um, it's easy. And so right now I think, you know, Muslims are one of those villains and, um, it makes it very easy to have that bias. And I would venture a guess to say that, you know, there are some people in media that don't even realize they're doing it.
0: Well, and that's a challenge you have when you come up through a a media, you know, that that has a a history of taking taking a specific point of view and you in order to advance in that media if you deviate from that point of view, people may not be interested mm-hmm. in having you continue to report for them. So uh, it's it's just a it's a it's a challenge with the with the media as a whole. Talk about um, talk about. Let, let me let me let me share an experience with you, and then you can um, you can uh, hopefully uh, help us with this. So my wife, uh, my current wife, whom, I, whom I've been married to since 2006, we've been together for 20 plus years. Uh, her name is. Karima, Chedda, K-A-R-Y-M-A. Her last name is Cheda. She's of Ecuadorian descent. Her father um, was, was Middle Eastern. Um, so she has a an Arabic sounding and an Arabic spelled first name. Every time we go somewhere, she gets the mm. double check. Like it's it's a random screening, but it's always random for her. <laughs> i've never been pulled aside (laughs) i've never been (laughs) patted down and we've not gone anywhere where she hasn't been pulled aside and been patted down do you you have the same experience
1: i would say not recently um but uh, i'll tell you a funny story Uh, me and my wife we were traveling um in canada this is around 2005 um and uh my wife, at the time, was traveling on an Indian passport, and I was traveling on the U.S. passport. i a citizen of this country since I don't know 1977 or somewhere around there. You know, I was very young when I got my citizenship, and um, we were flying. We're at the Quebec airport, and we're flying back to the U.S. And we go to the counter, and it's a very tiny little airport. You know, there's one person checking passports, and my wife gives her Indian passport, and everything's fine. And I give my U.S. passport. And the woman just kind of looks at the screen right she's like she's seen things that you know um and i said is there a problem right? and she t- kind of turns her screen around and you can see it, like flashing red right <laughs> and she's like i don't know i don't know what's going on here calls over a supervisor and the supervisor turns the computer back immediately and says you're not supposed to show him that right so after a couple of conversations and whatnot they tell me oh you're on the no-fly list right? i said ah i guess that's new um and um you know, after about uh, half an hour of them, you know, trying to figure out who I was and matching middle initials and whatnot, they said, okay, now you're finally clear to take off. And it was really around that time, um, I think from 2005 to about uh, 2010 or so, where every time I traveled, it was, oh, sir, You've been flagged for a random check, you know? <laughs> so I said, okay. So I just started going to the airport a little bit earlier. I said, you know, it, it, it I'm not going to be able to change anyone's mind at TSA. They've got jobs to do and whatnot. So I'll show up at the airport a little bit earlier. Um, And and that's the way I kind of took it. Uh, I think since that time, I'm sure someone's tracking this because now I've got two younger daughters that I travel with most of the time and um you know maybe that family dynamic has has changed the way that uh, the no fly list looks at me i don't i don't seem to have those issues anymore
0: yeah yeah it just (laughs) seems you know it seemed to me that and my wife is um she's not a go along get along type person so you know we, we have to temper her, her, her questions so that we can get through security and actually get to where we're going. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a dynamic. Now, one of the things that has helped is, uh, and this is just an aside, it's got nothing to do with, uh, with diversity, but we applied for global entry. I applied for global entry years mm-hmm. ago Um, when she started, uh, traveling more, when my kids got older and we started traveling more often with the kids, she applied for global entry and that's made it easier. So what happens is she gets, you know, pulled aside for the random check and she says, I don't know if you have my global entry number and she takes out the global entry card. She still gets the random check, but she's been vetted. Right. So they know, you know, they've gone through her back. I mean, we probably gave up all kinds of all kinds of rights by applying for global entry. They're probably (laughs) listening to this as we record it right now. And my phone is probably, you know, somebody at the NSA is listening to this. Um, But it it is it it has gotten easier. Talk about, um, you know, one of the things I have, a I have a good friend here in Florida, Robert Vaughn, who uh, who owns a highly successful law firm. Um, And he's um, a uh, Caribbean American, of Caribbean American descent. And he says that one of the things that he had to get used to here, and maybe it's just a Southern thing, was being, uh, walking into a courtroom as, you know, lead counsel in a bet the company litigation and people asking him. You know when the lead counsel was going to get there because they wanted to wanted to talk about the case or you know the uh, the other side and he walks into a mediation the other side says when's your boss coming we want to get started mm-hmm. right have you have you experienced the same thing yeah yeah
1: very much so very much so to to the point where when I am working with a client in that type of litigation um, I will go through the calculus as to whether I should be lead counsel.
0: Really, Pretending you you would make yes. the decision. Why, why? Why is that? I mean, you're the best person for the job. Who cares what other people think?
1: Um, because as much as I would like not to believe it and that justice is blind, after twenty years in the court system, I know that it's not. Um, so, is
0: this is this bench trials or is it is it you know trials to a jury or both or?
1: Uh, I mean, what I, what I would say when it comes to a trial, you know, it, it's uh, it, by the time you get to trial, um, you know, a case has been usually set up in a certain direction. Um, and sometimes the trial, you kind of know the outcome already. Um, so it's not just the trial dynamics that you have to kind of think about. It's the everyday motions as to what evidence is going in and who's going to allow you to pursue um, you know, some type of inquiry or something like that. Um, and it's those little fights sometimes that drive a case in a direction where you know, now you're talking about settlement in a context you didn't want to before. Uh, now, I will say that I think that um, the situation has gotten better. Um, but some of the experiences that I went through early in my career make it such that, um, you know, I would be, my, be doing my client a disservice if I didn't go through that calculus, especially given the fact as to where that case may be. Um, like, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a quick story about um, uh, about something that happened back in, uh, I think this is going back to about 2009 or 10. Um, I had a client of Chinese descent who was, um, the owner of some real estate in Alabama and he had uh, been sued because one of his managers had committed an act of sexual harassment against someone else in the office. So the manager was sued, the owner was sued and, um, and, uh, he asked me to take over the case about a month or so before it got to trial. So, I said, sure, no problem, and um, I got on a call with our opposing counsel and a federal judge and the judge says, well, you know, I have to have a conference before trial. It's federal court, lots of judges uh, will allow you to do these kind of conferences by phone and the judge was insistent, absolutely insistent about, you know, me coming down to Alabama for this, what, uh, it should have been about 20, 30-minute conference at the most. I said, okay, you're the judge, no problem flew down to Alabama, and uh, we're sitting in chambers with the judge and opposing counsel, and, um, and you know, we finished up the conference. And I said, Judge, you know, with all due respect, we probably could have done this on the phone. He says, oh, yes, 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 yes. I have a question for you, though, right? And I said, what's that? He said, look, I'm a judge, and I will absolutely give you a fair trial, right? Justice is blind and giving me the whole spiel. But he said, I just wanted to meet the guy that is of – Pakistani descent with a Chinese client who thinks he can get a Alabama jury to be fair to his client <laughs> so uh, you know so there's a judge kind of looking at it the uh, you know a uh, different way in that respect and um, you know and so you know we had a chuckle about that but uh, it was something that he wanted to make sure that I took back to my client as you know listen don't put all your eggs in in the legal basket here
0: yeah yeah well i mean listen getting hometown in in alabama is not something that is unique to Muslims. It happens to people from florida it happens to people from michigan um i mean it's just it's just one of those places where eventually we'll get electricity and running water down to them (laughs) so um talk to me about how you uh how you teach your kids uh how to handle stuff like this, because it's, uh, you know, one of my kids came to me, um, my son, a few years ago, a lot, well, actually now it's a, it's a long time ago, probably six years ago, and he came to, he said, at the dinner table, um, like a, w- a week before um, Martin Luther King Day, and he said, uh, and we do this thing around the dinner table a couple of days a week, and I tell me what you're grateful for, and he said, you know, I'm really grateful for Martin Luther King, and my wife said, oh, really, tell me about that, and he mm-hmm. said, well, if it wasn't for Martin Luther King, you and daddy would have never been able to get married. So we we kind of we laughed about it a little bit, but you know I said tell me tell me a little bit more about where you heard that, and it was a good it was a good moment for us to start having a dialogue with our kids about systemic racism and um, you know talking about how having conversations with people helps you understand their point of view and you don't have to you don't have to necessarily agree with it, but it's important to understand what the foundation is where this comes from. And then, you know, you can make a judgment as to whether you can uh, help them see things differently or whether it's best just to move on. How do you have conversations with your kids? Because I think that religion is something that is, I mean, it's ingrained in who we are, yeah. it's a way of life. So tell me how you, uh, how you teach your kids about the way society, um, you know, fairly or unfairly, judges people based on what their religion is
1: that's a very good question and um i gotta tell you i don't think that you know we've come out with our children this is me and my wife you know actually having sit down conversations about that um you know my wife um you know god bless her she's she's a very strong woman she's an attorney in her own right and uh, early on, when we were having kids, we made a, a conscious decision to instill religion on them at a very young age um, and as much as we could, um, you know, to kind of set that foundation and make them uh, make it strong within them, you know, so that they could then move forward with that. What they do with it later on in their life, you know, that's up to them and where their faith takes them and stuff like that, um, you know, because both me and my wife, we had different experiences with faith, you um, myself growing up in the united states in the uh you know 70s and 80s there wasn't a lot of room or place for faith um you know getting back to the the thing with american muslims kind of assimilating more right it was it was more important at that point in time you know to make sure that you were in little league than going to the mosque right um and and there's nothing wrong with that it's just a different thought process and so the um sure
0: well, and you experience you experience that in every right. religion, right? There are there are Christians who are like that. There are Jews who are like that. You experience every religion. There are people, and we're we're there now. Where you know my kids went to Catholic school for years, uh, and when they went to Catholic school, we went to church every week. But you know, uh, they're not in Catholic school right now. So, and because of the pandemic, we're not going to church. And. I mean, we may, we may not go back to church because it just is, it, you know, we still have faith, but we may not go back to church because it may not be, it just may not, it may not be something that we do down the road. I mean, our lives may have changed to the point where we've lost that aspect of it. So it, it happens with every religion. Yeah. No, that's uh, go okay. Go ahead. I okay. And, and you're absolutely you're
1: right. It. And I think, you know, a part of that comes into, you know, people's own faith and stuff like that. But, you know, to your point about how, how my kids have kind of addressed it, you know like i was surprised i was shocked actually that you know last year when uh, when one of my daughters was uh tasked with doing a project on uh one of the most important things in her life she took the opportunity to do a project about her faith and then proceeded to teach her whole mm. class about the about being muslim in america and stuff like that and and so uh, you know so i think that strong foundation early on you know has kind of propelled the you know um you know the kids to kind of have that sense of self you know and um and, and yeah. kind of navigate those those issues as they see them but the other thing that we did was you know we purposefully moved to a township that is very not only culturally diverse but religiously diverse so we're we're a township that has a, mm. a, a large number of churches and synagogues and mosques in an, it right in the township and we did that on purpose you yeah. know
0: interesting you know so this is, and this is something that, uh, you know, that, I, that I'm curious about with you uh, again, it's, it's a similar experience to the experience that, that we've had as a family. So we moved to, we moved to Miami in 2006 and we lived in a, um, predominantly predominantly well from Miami, predominantly white area. Uh, meaning that there were, there were people from central and South America, but, um, the the people who lived there, but they were snowbirds. The people who live in the area where where we were living were predominantly um, white. It was on the border of Broward County, and we made a conscious decision when we were ready to have kids to move to a more diverse community and to put our kids in a um, in a bilingual school. And I guess I guess, and you made you know you made a similar decision. I guess that's part of who mm-hmm. we are, right? Because we weren't forced. We could live anywhere we want. We were we weren't forced to make that decision. And I guess that just goes to show and this was not something that went into the calculus, but it just goes to show I guess what our what our priorities are. And that's why, you know, and that's why we chose to live in those to live in those communities. I guess we're making the exact opposite decision that you know, from my own personal experience, I guess that, you know, my parents or maybe my grandparents made when they were, they wanna move to the good neighborhood because there's all people like them in the good neighborhood. Well, nowadays we wanna move to a neighborhood when there's people who are not like us. (laughs) So our kids can be (laughs) exposed to that, right? Um, Let's talk a little bit about the practice of law and how you've been able to, um, I hate to use the term leverage, but use your faith, leverage your faith to help you uh, from a business development perspective. Has that been an area where you've been able to um, connect with people who are of the same faith and every, you know, marketing works on points of commonality, right? Have you been able to leverage your faith as a way to help grow your practice?
1: Absolutely, Um, you know, and and to the extent, like what you're saying, you know, relationships are built on commonality. And, you know, um, as as you've always shared with me, Dave, um, you know, the more, uh, the more contacts you have, the the more points you touch, the more ability you have to grow that, uh, grow those relationships, then in turn leads to business, right? Um, so, you know, what I've been able to do over, uh, especially the last couple of years, you know, is engage with, um, uh, you know, more with my community, more with, um, you know, people of the same faith, um, in an effort, in the same way, to just touch more people. And you know, then in building those relationships about things that I'm passionate about, right? Um, you know, then that then in turn leads to conversations about, you know, hey, I need this, or this person needs this, or something like that, and then ends up building building that that business, and then the um, the relationship that you started with, you know, end up ends up becoming a little bit stronger as well, right? By having those different conversations. Um, so certainly, you know, I think it's um, you know, it, it's it's a function of being involved in something that you like, right? And then going from there.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I agree. What would you say to people who are who are concerned, who um you know, who uh, you know they, they don't have you have a you have a unique name, um, but you know, if my name was John Smith and I uh, and I was a Muslim, and you know, they were concerned about people. Um, not wanting to engage them, or they they didn't want to, um, you know, lead with their faith from a from a business perspective. What advice, what counsel do you give to folks like that?
1: I, I think it, uh, you know, that that kind of comes from within, right? So I, I think whatever kind of works for you, because especially in a in a business sales context, you have to be comfortable, right? And if you're not comfortable, you're not going to make the other person comfortable and they're not gonna hire you, right? I think that, especially mm-hmm. that, that goes a long way with professional services, whether it be a lawyer or a doctor or anything like that. Uh, if you can't make that person feel at ease and comfortable, there's no reason in continuing the conversation. Um, and and it, it happens, you know, there, there are some people, you know, personality-wise that, uh, you know, not all business should go to the same person or, you know, uh, because you can't make everyone feel comfortable. Uh, I think personalities mesh in a certain way, and, um, and business develops that way, but it's not, for, it's, not, it's not that everyone then all of a sudden has to become your client because of that, um, or because of faith even, right? Um, so one of the, you know, uh, it's not really a faith thing, this might be more of a culture thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I fight um, among, uh, especially the South Asian community, right, whether they're Muslim, Hindu, Christian, doesn't matter, right? is um, there's a different perception as to what a lawyer should do and what a lawyer does. Um, and so you're fighting that perception as well.
0: Yeah, share, share a little bit more about that. Go into, go into a little bit more detail. So there, there are different expectations of level of service or type of service? I think it's right?
1: a little bit of both, right? So um, now I've never witnessed the legal profession in South Asian countries. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of what's been described to me is, you know, the, y- your, your ordinary business owner may not be using a lawyer as, hey, this is my go-to counsel, right? I'm going to run things by them and, and use a lawyer in that way, um, the way a lot of businesses here in the United States do, right? Like before I pull the trigger on this, let me make sure I get my lawyer involved. And what you find a lot, right, is that South Asians will come to you after the fact and say, hmm, I'm in this mess. Now, how do we fix it? Um, and uh, you know, and I, 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 don't, I, think you know, I believe that that's more of a cultural thing. Like, hey, you know, I can Google this or I can figure this out and then go from there. Um, it, whereas, um, you know, not understanding the value that you get um, by hiring an expert in that field, um, it, it just right. seems like, oh, well, you're just reading a piece of paper, you're downloading a form, and and charging me a lot of money for it, right?
0: Interesting. Okay, all right. Talk a little bit about now mainstream practice of law, and let's talk about how you're um, you're focused on growing your business these days. What are you doing? Give us the give us the portfolio of things you do to grow your book of business actively.
1: Uh, I think I I stay with the same things that I've always tried to do. And that is to, to be in touch with as many people as possible and be receptive to my clients. Um, you know, because that's, you know, both ways to grow business, new contacts and your existing ones and stuff like that. And really try to listen, um, you know, to what people need. You know, I, I just gave an example. Someone called me the other day and said, hey, I have a nonprofit and we need bylaws. Um, okay, uh, that's fine. But let's talk about that, right? And you start talking about, you know the company and what they're doing and everything like that and that request that hey I need bylaws turned into you know we really got to take a look at everything because you might not be in compliance with the four states you're operating in Um, so uh, you know so that type of listening and understanding as opposed to just more of uh, you know commodity type business like okay someone needs bylaws here's your bylaws right.
0: you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's funny that you mentioned that there's, uh, a significant port, par, a significant part of what I do is in helping professionals understand lifetime value and the lifetime value of those relationships. The best time to set the tone for that is when you're mm-hmm. onboarding the new client, when the client calls you with the new matter and you say to them, listen, you know, I, let me get to know your business a little bit more and you ask pointed questions that doesn't necessarily lead you to pitch work that's unnecessary it leads you to protect them from things they didn't know were out there and right. can hurt them so i think your i think your you know your your point about onboarding folks and and understanding the whole spectrum of work that you can do for them is is critical and i would encourage everybody to to think about that talk about how that that plays into the value of being at a firm because if i if i remember correctly did you you mm. worked on your own for a while didn't you have your own practice for a while and now you're with off at kerman you're with a firm so talk about the contrast oh absolutely
1: the so the um, you know i've had three different iterations of my own firm over the years and um you know in one of those or two of those you know it, it became like okay umar is going to be jack of all trades And, you know, whereas you try to keep the client and service the client the best way you can, you're learning, you know, the the learning curve in, in different types of law, you know, can become steep as you're trying to service more clients at the same time. At a firm like Offit Kerman, you've got that leverage of other expertise, right? So once you've identified the issue and the need and the client's ready to move forward, because not every issue has to be solved in one day, right? We can timeline those out based on cost and budget and everything like that. You've got those other peers that you can bounce work off of right Um, and say you know sure i could figure out how to do x y and z for you but it's a time element and one if you're in a hurry to get it done or even two i might get it wrong right so you got to know your limits and know your expertise and um you know and and then be able to effectively transfer um a a client to another attorney for that work right because that's a process in and of itself and um you know some some clients will say no absolutely i want you to do the work and you know it that's a hard conversation in itself sometimes
0: oh interesting what um what makes it difficult in that they don't people people think of the you've heard me use the law and order analogy before people think every lawyer is like what they see on tv is that is that what makes it difficult hey umar you can do this uh, i
1: think that's part of it but i think um the other side of it is the trust in the relationship that you've built up um i've I have a, a, a fair number of clients that feel they've been burned by other lawyers, um, either over overcharging or not getting work done and whatnot. And so it's that feeling of you're just passing me along, right? And, and I don't have that sounding board that I'm used to now, um, in which then you got to convince them, look, I'm here, right, I'm not going anywhere. We're just having some expertise brought into the situation.
0: Right, right yeah it's a it's a it's a curious um it's a it's a it's a curious thing for uh for clients to feel that way i think you're you know you have to position yourself as the quarterback and make sure that the client knows that that you have other people on the team that are Mm -hmm. that are deeply qualified in other areas and while you may have a surface level knowledge it's not it's not the area that you practice in every day so the client is better off using your team member and you're always going to be there right you're always going to be there to help them out let's um let's end on uh on a thing that um that i'm struggling with with my clients and i think my well-intentioned clients struggle with very often and uh and this is the the embracing of diversity and making a law firm more diverse i used to worry that it would be hard for me to convince law firms that they had to be more diverse and that by becoming more diverse in their attorneys and people who are on their management committee, they would be able to attract better matters. They would be able to bring better perspective to Mm. the matters they were handling. I used to worry that convincing them that diversity was a good business practice was gonna be my uphill challenge, okay? Mm. That's not the case anymore. It's easy to convince Mostly white law firms, especially law firms with white equity partners, it's easy to convince them that diversity is good for business. Okay. What's hard is to get a bunch of white guys to figure out how to diversify their firm. And years ago, when I was, you know, I was a, a know it all punk as a consultant, I worked with Ann Taylor Stores. And one of the tasks was hey, Dave, you're a consultant, you've done great work for us in solving other problems. Everybody, we, we can't get black people to come work for us. How do we get black? We're opening a store on 125th Street. How do we get black people to to work in that store? Well, you know, hire a black manager, hire a black regional vice president, and you know, let them go out into the community and watch how easy it becomes to diversify your, you know, your stores, how how diver- how easy it is to diversify that region what is what is the best counsel you can give to a firm that wants to diversify but they grew up in white neighborhoods they grew up with white people they went to colleges that were 90 mm-hmm. percent white all their friends are white. How do you begin to embrace diversity and uh, make the shift to becoming a, a more diverse firm and it's not unique to the practice of law. there are other businesses like this but it's hard to find a, a profession like the law where you know, uh, there, there's just uh, the white people are in charge in 90% no, absolutely. of the firms. And I,
1: I, I think where it starts is teaching young attorneys of color how to develop a book of business. Right. Because at the end of the day, running a law firm is a business like any other. Right. So, how do you increase the ranks of diversity at the partner level? Right you know you're not going to make a partner uh, someone a partner just because they're diverse and you know the, no firm should be expected to do that and i don't think anybody would want that as a partner right to kind of yeah it wouldn't be them, right? them. it so, would be good for the so, firm. you know at the end of the day it turns on well what's your business right how much business do you have and and you know how much are you bringing through the door that process of building that book right um, you know if, if you start thinking about you know like you were saying You know, you've got law firms built on um, people that went to mostly white colleges, that went to mostly white law schools. Um, I don't think the process starts at the law firm, right? I mean, these are are other issues that we've kind of have to fix along the way or improve diversity, you know, into the law school ranks, into the associate ranks before you get to that point. But those associates that are now coming out of law school that are of color, right, you got to pick them up early and show them how to build that book of business so they're in that position to become partner later. And and that's what I, you know, I I try to mentor as many young, younger students, you know, now like when I went to law school, you know, there weren't many people of color going to law school in the early, you know, but now those ranks have increased and you see a lot more South Asian lawyers, you see a lot more African American lawyers. Um, And you know, the question is, is who's giving them that guidance early on as to what you should do with your career. Right. Um, And and I've told some younger students that I mentor that, you know, the traditional uh, path, you know, like getting that nice, big, firm job with a big salary that may not benefit you, Um, you know, in the long run is if you go if you go down that way. Um, And so just kind of showing them what to expect. I know I didn't have that when I was coming out of law school. I didn't have a Muslim or a South Asian attorney to look up to and point me in the right direction. Just trial by yeah. fire. No,
0: that's right? that's good. That's good advice. All right, Umar, where can people where can people get in touch with you if they want uh, if they want an outstanding attorney um, for real estate for litigation for well, you work it off of Kerman. You can do pretty much anything. Where can where can they get in touch with you in um, in New York, New Jersey, uh, in the tri-state area? How can people reach out to you?
1: Well, the, the the best way is just to to go on our website and and look me up, but. Uh, you know, if anybody's ever uh looking me up i caution them to always use my middle initial um because if not you will get terrorists on your google page right <laughs> and that gets back into our no-fly list conversation uh
0: well for the for the benefit of our listeners uh, or or people who are who are watching this interview <laughs> we're going to put umar's exact contact information in the show notes you're going to be able to click on it and you'll be able to you'll be able to find him Uh, Umar Sheikh, it was an absolute honor. It was a privilege having you having you with us today. And I appreciate uh, your ability to uh, your openness to having this conversation. Um, It's a continued continuing dialogue. We're going to we're going to continue to have it. And hopefully um, people got. A lot out of it. And I know our continued discussions will lead to my continued education. So thanks for joining us today, folks. This is the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and we're here every day with the Inside Business Strategy, Insider Business Secrets for you. Join us back here again tomorrow. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.